Welcome to HealthCast. I'm your host, Melissa Harris. The National Institutes of Health All of Us Research Program kicked off a couple of years ago with the goal of enrolling 1 million or more participants to contribute their health data in an effort to advance individualized healthcare. The program's goal is to analyze and protect participant health information to accelerate the pace of health research discoveries and to enable precision medicine, a form of healthcare treatment that's tailored to the individual. All of us has worked to build a database that can inform new discoveries on a variety of critical medical questions. This past month, all of us announced it will leverage its participant database to seek new insights into COVID-19, namely through antibody testing, surveying the pandemic's impacts on individuals, and collecting electronic health record information. In this episode, All of Us CEO, Dr. Josh Denny, explains the role his program is taking in making discoveries around COVID-19, how precision medicine can help individuals typically underrepresented in medical research, and how the program balances participant health data protection with data collection and analysis. All right, Josh, welcome to HealthCast. How are you? Doing well. So I just wanted to start by getting a brief explanation about the history of the All of Us program. Can you explain a little bit about how it looks to leverage health data to make medical discoveries? Certainly. You know, the promise of precision medicine is to really try to improve the healthcare for everyone. To get a more complete picture of the ways one's makeup, such as their genomics, their exposures, their environments, their habits, all combine to influence their health and how we can best target it in ways that's not you know, one size fits all. To date, most research cohorts have either been retrospective, small, or you know, not really representative, typically not very diverse. And so you know, our challenge and opportunity with all of us was to build a very large cohort that is also very diverse and has many different types of information. So by doing that, we really want to have a complete picture of an individual's health so that we can really figure out ways to most rapidly advance health and discover new things that maybe we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And it's really about getting a number of different types of information together and using that with large populations to be able to best figure out ways to treat you know, each individual person the best. And so we're really trying to bring it all together in a really comprehensive way. Yeah. And given with COVID-19 lately, the symptoms between individuals are so drastically different. And I guess that's a good segue to the new initiative you're taking at All of Us, which is to use your participant base to learn more about COVID-19. So can you explain what that initiative is about right now? Certainly. You know, when COVID-19 was emerging and beginning to strike, I think everyone involved in science and medicine, you know, quickly realized the potential that this disease could have to ravage our population. And given that really the entire world was at risk. And so there were a lot of efforts, obviously, to contain it. But a lot of people thought, too, you know, what can we do to help combat it? So we, like everyone else, looked, especially thinking about the diversity of our population, what could we do to help learn about the disease and help shed light on factors of what population it's, it's affecting? Clearly, in the United States, we've seen that it affects diverse populations, minority populations, harder than white populations. And we don't really understand that. So well, we also don't know exactly, for instance, when and where it came into the United States and how it spread. 
there are a lot of questions like that that we felt like maybe we could shed some light on. So as we looked at what was happening and what we have an opportunity to address, even early into the program as we are, and really two years after our national launch, we felt that there are things that we could do to you know, help shed light on COVID-19. So we developed a couple programs. The first is testing uh, antibody exposures and individuals who enrolled in the early part of 2020 and potentially into late 2019 as the disease was first coming into the United States. So that will give us a sense of where and when it entered our population and maybe how it spread and what the populations it spread through by looking at past exposures to the virus really before March, March and before of 2020. The second part of that is we realize that, you know, COVID-19 affects everyone, even and really strongly those who aren't by social distancing, by less social contact, by just what's happening in the media, potentially by increased discrimination, which of course has also, we've seen a dramatic shift by something else we wouldn't have expected with reminders of a systemic racism that's affected our country. And so we wanted to look at that. And so we launched a survey that is available to all of our participants. And then we're also trying to improve our data capture. That's the final method here. Electronic health record data is a really key component of the data we collect on our participants. And so we worked on ways to better access our EHR data and make sure that the data related to COVID-19, such as the PCR testing of the virus, the antibody testing that would be present in EHR records and diagnoses would be encoded properly, as well as things like treatment, whether you're in the ICU or not. All those kinds of things we want to make sure are captured well in our electronic health record data. so that researchers will be able to analyze well what is happening with the disease. Yeah, building off of the role of EHRs in your program, can you explain how advancements in interoperability and data analytics could further the use of electronic health records in your research? Certainly. I've been focused on electronic health records for research really for more than 15 years, and they are an incredibly powerful tool for clinical and genetic research as a platform that gives you not only disease states, but exposures and medications and outcomes, laboratory values over you know, many decades. Our patients, our participants joined, you know, mostly after 2018. But, you know, we had data back into the 1980s on a number of individuals because of their electronic health record. However, pulling it all together across many different sites is hard. There's been advances in interoperability, but you know what you find is really harmonizing that data is still a challenge. And our teams work really hard across a number of different sites to take those data and cross a bunch of different electronic health record vendors. It's probably around 20 different EHR vendors over across you know at least 50 different providers as you think about all the different versions that are happening there that have been collated into one common data model that is centralized for the All of Us Research Program to support research. And that's really a unique set. I'm not sure that anyone else has really ever combined so many different vendors and sites together into one big harmonized data set that researchers can use, but it's not trivial. Our sites have worked very hard to do so. So fortunately, there are a lot of evolving standards out there that are making this easier. We're also working on helping promote those standards. And you can see, for instance, with Apple HealthKit as one example of one of those standards that we've helped promote through the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. And those kinds of efforts we're trying to help become community efforts that help. They don't completely solve all the problems, but they help move us in the right direction. So it's one I hope we continue to make progress on. Certainly. 
And for COVID-19, all of us has been collecting data through different labs across the country and partner providers, as you were touching upon, many of which are from the private sector. Can you explain the partnerships you have with private sector organizations in data sharing and collection, and perhaps how you safeguard data privacy in that process? Certainly. So we have funded a network of healthcare provider organizations across the country, which include academic medical centers, regional medical centers, of other types, federally qualified health centers, and the VA. And all these folks recruit participants and provide data, such as EHR data and their lab values that they're testing, among other things, back to us. And then we you know, store that and centrally protect it and then provide access to it. And so for the data that we collect from these different partners, it all becomes part of one central data set. Our participants are partners with us. They can access their data through a website and the smartphone apps, and we can send them messages. We'll be able to view data as they provide it to us. So that means that there's a participant interaction there, and we have a lot of data about participants. So it's really important that we protect it. You know, privacy and security are job one. We have to really treat those data that people donate to us as sacrosanct. And they want it to be used for research, and we have to do that in a safe way. So first of all, you know, the only folks that get access to the data are those who you know, need to, and we approve as researchers on the platform. And then all the data they use has identifiers removed from it. So people don't see those obvious identifiers to know who they are. They agree to a certain code of conduct and how they do research. And then to prevent people from doing things that getting access to the system that we won't permit, we really use best in class technologies, teams to develop our protocols and security platforms. And we continually test that. We even have white hat hackers that try to you know, continuously break into the system and tell us of any things that we could do better and help us find things that may be out of date or, or we could do you know, in a better way. We've never found any big security vulnerabilities in any way, but we continually monitor and test the system to make sure that we are living up to the standards we set for ourselves and to make sure that we really do provide a best in class system across, you know, what you think about in terms of any industry, we're trying to really exceed those standards. Right. And just going back to the way your program is dealing with COVID-19 right now, how is all of us scaling up its data collection and analysis capabilities to learn more about the novel coronavirus? You know, we actually just launched our researcher workbench uh, at the end of May, and that is the system that allows uh, external researchers to apply for access and come in and start to do analysis on our data sets. Those data right now, you know, do not contain really relevant data to COVID-19. However, we as a program, as we've launched these resources, will be analyzing the data as they come in. And we are working with the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, CDC, and other colleagues, as well as the consortium, of course, to provide early analyses on these data so that we can provide those answers as fast as we can find them. So the antibody testing that's happening right now, we have a written out analysis plan on already, certainly have the you know, resources and facilities and stuff to do those analyses once we start getting data. And those samples will actually start shipping next week to the lab to do the testing. And uh, we're going to continue to do those kind of in five batches of 5,000 until we don't see any more positive antibody tests as we go back in time. And the same thing kind of goes with our survey responses and EHR data. We try to, as we bring data in, we'll look at what we're getting and we'll build analyses around them and certainly move to share those as fast as we can. Yeah. Is there also a timeline for which you want to discover certain things about COVID-19? You are working with these partner organizations, but is there some sort of vision for what you want to accomplish in analyzing COVID-19? 
Yes. Two answers to that question. One is to make resources available to the external community, because one thing I've learned is by making data available, people will come in and do things that you never thought of. And then the other is to you know do the initial analyses ourselves to make some of the science happen as fast as possible. I think the first kinds of things we'll be able to look at uh, from things like the antibody testing and the we're actually comparing two different platforms with a number of gold standards, positive and negative controls as well, will probably come out towards the end of the summer or early fall. And then a lot of the other data will be analyzed through the course of the rest of this year. But I think uh, other people will come in and use the resources for lots of different purposes. For one of the things, for instance, we'll be able to do is look at exposures now and then what does that mean for your health next year or two years from now? What does that mean for how you social distance now and maybe your risk of exposure in the fall? And so all these kinds of things will be you know, ongoing research studies that will continue to evolve over time. So I don't really see an end to this kind of stuff or a longitudinal study, but I think the first sorts of things will happen later this year. And we intend to tell those stories certainly as fast as we can to help with pandemic planning and understanding of what happened here. For sure. And also you were touching upon how precision medicine is a very key component of all of us. Since people have such drastically different symptoms when they contract COVID-19, do you think that in many ways this coronavirus can pave forward a new path to precision medicine and shaping how different people are treated for the disease? That is certainly the promise and the hope. And I think you are right. I mean, I think we've never had a scenario in which a novel virus came out and we were able to couple it with, you know, exposures and analysis that help us figure that out. You know, we see health disparities in many different diseases. We don't often know why. That's often actually a mystery and takes a long time to figure out. A lot of these resources that highlight a health disparity don't have the depth to go in and figure out why. And we actually will have that. You know, we understand social determinants of health through questions that we ask. We have understandings of, you know, geography of where someone lives. We have their health status. We know things about their demographics that are deeper than what's just in the health record. And then we have, you know, molecular data. We'll have whole genome sequencing on individuals. And so we'll be able to look at all those kinds of data and find, you know, genetic predictors of response. And I believe that we will find things that predict why most kids are fine, but why do some kids have a system inflammatory disorder? Why some young adults have severe reactions, end up in ICUs and die, and most have a self-limited course. I think anytime you see differences like that, it points to differences in health status or makeup that predict those differences. In medicine, we use the word idiopathic a lot historically, meaning we don't know what determines the difference. And, you know, I like to say that idiopathic, you know, is a proxy for just that we don't know enough. And it is points to us trying to figure out and resolve why we don't understand why there are differences. And so I believe our resource will be a powerful tool to help uncover some of those differences over time. Mm -hmm. And just to get a little bit of information about you and your role in the program of all of us, since you've been involved in the program since it was pretty much started, so how have you applied your background in bioinformatics, genomics, and internal medicine in the evolution of the program both so far and into the future? I've been driven by the promise of precision medicine for a long time. When I was at Vanderbilt before this project existed, I worked on a project where we were combining leftover DNA samples from basically clinical testing with the participants' permission, of course, consent. 
with electronic health record data that was de-identified to find discoveries. And some of those we actually were able to put back in practice in clinical care at Vanderbilt while I was there. So I've been compelled by that vision that by gathering this kind of research and making an open research platform that investigators can come in and ask lots of really interesting questions that really are compelled by health and things that people discover, you can move things forward faster. And this crosses so many domains of knowledge. You know, it crosses, of course, things like statistics and biology, but you really want to keep it also closely tied to healthcare and health. And I think, you know, I've always been driven by how we can use that leftover clinical data, all that stuff that we are collecting to really, you know, do what doctors think about as personalized medicine. I've always thought about, you know, caring for the patient in front of them and doing the best they can for that person for you know, centuries, millennia. But how can we come behind them and make things better and learn from what folks do, what they experience, and all the data we can collect? And so that's really guided my training. That's guided my interests. And that's why I've been a part of this program from the beginning. So I was thrilled to have the opportunity to come join at the NIH after leading the Data and Research Center at Vanderbilt before joining the NIH. And as you say, having been involved from the beginning, I've always thought that this program, you know, offers that potential to reach the population at a scale and diversity that just hasn't been done before. And that will help all of us. And the pun is intended there. Definitely. And where do you think the future of health data collection and tracking is going to go? Do you think that wearables or more data sharing collaborations will be key? Yes. I think wearables, digital health technologies are really a future. But I'll, you know, I'll point to a history of medicine where, you know, early discoveries and thoughts around something being good are understanding that just because we're seeing something, we should do something. There's an old trial in the 1980s called the CAS trial where we thought it must be a good thing to suppress certain types of irregular heartbeats. And so people did trials and they found out that actually suppressing those with the medications they were using was a bad thing. And it was one of the first observations of a new class of data. We have to learn how to use it. And, you know, all of us really has the potential and really will help figure that out. If you think about heart care, it's moved tremendously with lots of new technologies that have really improved, dramatically improved morbidity and mortality for heart disease. And we want to, you know, use digital health technologies, I think will be a powerful tool, fitness monitors, wearables, you know, Apple watches and Fitbits and all this, you know, things that we wear in our pocket. You know, these things will really help us learn about how to better take care of people. But what you need to figure that out is, you know, the clinical data and the genomic data and people answering surveys, all the other things that you can compare it with so you can really discover what is beneficial and how you can improve things and get smarter by it. And, you know, again, move to treat the population better and faster. Certainly. And even though that COVID-19 is the most pressing medical challenge the country is facing right now, can you share all of us's top priorities and research areas in the futures? What are some of the program's biggest challenges and how are you looking to overcome them? Yeah, you know, when we started, I think there's so many things we proposed before this program got started that a lot of people said that, you know, honestly, we couldn't do. <laughs> you couldn't recruit such a diverse population. You couldn't get everyone to share their electronic health record data. If you collected it, you could never harmonize it. You know, doing a million whole genomes has never been done before. And certainly the pace at which we've done things, there was a lot of doubt that we would be able to move things as quickly along as we did across the country. You know, we have a number of tremendous partners in this and everyone is so dedicated, you know, towards driving towards this goal. The things I mentioned right there are all things I think we've had a lot of success at. 
where we're driving towards in some of our first discoveries, I think will move in the space of health disparities. Their genetic research, for instance, uh, about three to 4% of the genetic studies out there worldwide represent about a third of the United States population. So, you know, genetic research is not diverse enough. And so we'll suddenly have whole genome sequencing data on a really diverse population. So that means we'll uncover lots of genetic stories, I think, on even common diseases like diabetes that have been well studied before, not to mention rare diseases that we'll be able to study at a scale that hasn't been done before. Additionally, uh, some of those discoveries could lead to new medications. Of course, it takes a while to develop and test a medication, but I firmly believe that there will be findings in those genetic stories that people will use to have new insights into how things work and potentials for new drug targets. And there's actually drugs on the market now that have been discovered in this way, and I think we'll be able to accelerate that. We'll be able to look at clinical disparities. I think we'll be able to look at exposures. And, you know, we understand smoking is bad through small observational cohorts that looked over decades. You know, we have a large population with a lot of assessments. I think we'll be able to learn about some other exposures and really start to quantify what impact they have, good or bad. If you think that about COVID, for instance, one of the questions we didn't know early on and it's taken a while to answer is whether certain common high blood pressure medications would help or hurt because they actually bind to the same receptor that the SARS-CoV-2 virus uses to enter cells. And, you know, it turns out that all the data now suggests that those medications neither help nor hurt. They seem not to have much impact. But those kinds of questions are ones that, you know, I think we'll be able to answer as well. And you really need large data sets that are ready to go that have lots of diverse kinds of data in them to answer those kinds of questions. So I think we'll be able to answer that kind of thing. And then finally, things like clinical trials, being able to go back to participants and really ask more questions about diseases as you learn more, all those kinds of things will be enabled by our population. So it's really looking at accelerating existing types of research, expanding that research into diverse audiences, and then enabling new kinds of research that aren't maybe traditionally done in cohort populations. Definitely. And that diversity in representation in trials and research is so important, especially now that with a lot of the issues the country is facing. So I look forward to hearing more about the work that you guys do and hopefully making big changes for people in the way they're treated in the future. Thank you very much. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris, Adam Patterson, and Faith Bryan. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.